Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. So I have the immense privilege of kicking off our summer series on the parables of Jesus. Gullen, a famous medical doctor around 140 AD, wrote, Most people are unable to follow a demonstrative argument consecutively, hence they need parables and benefit from them. Just as now we see the people called Christians drawing their faith from parables and miracles and yet sometimes acting in the same way as those who philosophize, and in their keen pursuit of justice have attained a pitch not inferior to that of genuine philosophers. I think this is just really a fancy way of saying people remember stories. And the parables are stories that teach lessons that are on par with the greatest of thinkers. The parables aren't some dumbed-down stories to bring it down to a low level of understanding. They actually have incredible depth of thinking to them. And Jesus being the greatest thinker of all, it just makes sense that he told parables. For a long time now, I've been fascinated by one parable in particular which Jesus shared. This particular parable is actually the only parable and which is often referred to as three separate parables, but in actual fact is three for the price of one. And so the backstory to this starts in Luke 14, verse 1, where it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So this sets the scene of Jesus sitting in the house of a person of whom the group he is affiliated with has been challenging him at every opportunity available. Even here, as he's sitting there, he's been carefully watched, no doubt by the Pharisee himself even. From here, Jesus goes on and heals a person on a Sabbath, therefore challenging the Pharisees and experts in the law as this was forbidden by law. Then he shares about not taking the place of honour at a great or at a wedding feast, right after the guests at the very meal that he's speaking at have just sat down in the place of honour. And Jesus then goes on to encourage them that it, at such feasts to invite the poor and the downtrodden. Then he shares the parable of the great banquet, re-emphasizing the same point as the wedding feast. As you can imagine, he's starting to get a little bit of tension going on in the, the crowd that are around him. Luke 14, 25 says that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And from verse 26 through to 35, he challenges the crowd on the cost of being a disciple, to which he finishes by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Sorry, I'm just getting my breath. One of my things I have enjoyed during uh, the last two decades is sound engineering. Now, you might be going, what on earth is sound engineering? In case you don't know what a sound engineer does, I found this pretty accurate but old meme, um, which kind of sums it up really, really well. I think the top right one is, um, yeah, a bit contentious, but sadly true. Um, a sound engineer's world revolves around hearing and listening, taking multiple channels of sound at once and interpreting this into a singular sound that's pleasing to listen to. One of the most challenging, or dare I say belittling, things that can be said to us sound engineers is this, are you deaf? Can you not hear? For this, this actually rocks a sound engineer to our very core, as hearing or more so listening is the paramount task we have in front of us whenever we are mixing. Believe it or not, we are trying to create something pleasing. 
For some of this crowd who are with Jesus, their whole lives revolve around knowing and obeying the ancient scriptures. This statement that Jesus just said, I imagine to them, was a similar challenge to, are you deaf, can you not hear? And I believe Jesus wanted to ensure what he was saying was heard in its entirety, not just falling on deaf ears. So continuing on in Luke 15, 1-3, reading now from the message translation from this point onwards. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. So here are people that actually understood what Jesus was getting at. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. Remember that the crowd that has been gathering on the Sabbath as Jesus has eaten and walked and talked is in a large part full of people of doubtful reputation. Their past, or possibly even their present at that stage, seems to have very little influence on Jesus wanting to speak and minister to them. He's ready to speak to those who are ready to listen. And so begins the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or as also known, the parable of the lost things. So Luke 15, verses 4 to 24 continues. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave for 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders rejoicing. And when you got home, call in your friends and neighbours saying, celebrate with me, I've found my lost sheep. Count on it, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life and over 99 good people and no need of rescue. Or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scale the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbours, celebrate with me, I found my lost coin. Count on it, that's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul returns to God. Then he said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. So I've heard it said that repetition is the key to getting a point across and making something memorable. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in this parable. Here are three similar stories all wrapped up in one overall story. So I thought it would be good to look at some of the similarities 
I noticed that portrayed themselves in each of these similar stories, or as I call them, kind of sub-stories to the whole. Firstly is the matter of worth. Each of the lost things have immense worth. One sheep may not seem like much to us. In New Zealand, we have approximately about 27 million sheep. Growing up, I used to go to my uncle's farm um, out Prongia way, and he actually had about 6,000 sheep out there, so there was a, oh, there's a lot. Um, the biggest flock in New Zealand is about 18,000, so that's 180 times larger than the flock that they're mentioning here. So for me personally, I find it hard to comprehend how one sheep can be so valuable um, in the big scheme of a modern-day flock. But to put it into comparison, at the time of this parable, a typical family would have between 5 to 15 sheep. A very wealthy family may have up to 40 to 50. And in this instance of 100 sheep, it would have most certainly been a communal flock. The shepherd would have been looking after the sheep on behalf of all the owners collectively, and hence the value of the lost sheep was immense. His livelihood was likely on the line, the shepherd's, and the loss was a loss to the whole community. So immense value in that one lost sheep. In regards to the lost coin, the value is again immense. Now, our biggest coin in New Zealand is currently the $2. used to be the 50 cent, if you can remember that. Um, so it went up by four times value, two bucks. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to spend the entire night searching the house for two bucks. Maybe I would have when I was a student and money was a little bit um, less. Um, but these days, I'll just, just be like, meh, it'll turn up sometime, and then it's just a nice surprise when you find it. And generally, these days, you don't even know what to do with it. Um, there are a few takes on the value of this coin. It is widely agreed upon that the woman would have been based in a peasant village. It is also agreed upon that this coin was a silver coin worth about a day's wages. Now, a day's wage is that I would spend a little bit looking for. Kenneth Bailey, an expert on ancient Middle Eastern lifestyle, says, the peasant village is, to a large extent, self-supporting, making its own cloth and growing its own food. Cash is a rare commodity, hence the lost coin is of far greater value in a peasant home than the day's labour it represents monetarily. So here the value is not even so much in the lost income from the day, but in the rarity of replacing it. Its value is not in its tradable value, but in its, its worth as a whole. G. Campbell Morgan, in his book, Parables and Metaphors of Our Lord, captures another thought on the value of a coin when he says, the woman of that time often wore upon their brow a frontlet that was called Samedi. It was made up of coins in themselves, perhaps largely valueless, but it was a coin that had stamped upon it the image of authority. So I found out that a frontlet on a brow was quite similar to like a headband, um, and so they, she would have had those 10 coins kind of very, very visible. Some scholars believe the authority stamped on the coin re uh, revealed betrothal, others that it's actually the marriage relationship itself. I suppose much like what a wedding ring would be nowadays. Losing my wedding ring. Now that I would spend a lot more than one night trying to look for. The wedding ring itself signifies my relationship with Abby. And that's the only thing I actually have, really, that does that, outside of all our shared possessions and stuff. For the woman, losing the ring could be considered to be the same as losing a very part of her identity. The coin was simply worth a lot more than what it's taken at, at face value. 
And then the lost son, how do you place value on a life? At the time of this parable, to ask for inheritance before the death of a father was a great dishonor and was seen as placing the value of the inheritance above the importance of the father being alive, possibly suggesting that unknowingly, or maybe he knew very full well, the younger son placed the importance of the inheritance higher than the relationship between father and son. So really the father has truly lost his son, not just with him being physically, uh, not being physically present, but relationally as well. I would say this is actually the greatest loss of value that anyone can experience. I've also heard it mentioned that mathematically the value of each loss compared to what's left rises with each of these sub-stories, so starting at 1% loss, one coin out of 100, then 10%, um, sorry, one sheep out of 100, then 10%, one coin out of 10, and then 50%, one of the two sons. I think what Jesus was really pushing in was that this loss over the three sub-stories is immense. The second similarity between these parables I notice is that in each sub-story, in each of the lost things, the emphasis is on the agony of the person who lost the lost thing, not so much on the lost thing itself. G. Campbell Morgan again puts it well when he asks, where is the emphasis? On the word lost in each case, not on the condition of the thing lost. The emphasis lies in agony upon the heart of the one who has lost. The shepherd is suffering more than the wandering sheep The woman is suffering because the silver is lost. It is the father who knows the depth of agony when that boy is away. The lost sheep didn't know any better. Sheep will go wherever they find to go. Simply put, they're innocent and unaware. The shepherd, though, felt the agony of one being lost, enough to leave the 99 in the trust that they will remain safe, go out into the wilderness with all the dangers that that presents, and then search no matter how long it took him to find the one. Then the coins. Coins, funnily enough, can't lose themselves. Even though I swear I have items at home that do just that thing. But in all seriousness, the coin was lost through either inattention, mishandling, or just by plain mistake. The woman felt the agony of losing something so precious that she turned their house upside down looking for it in candlelight at that. And the son, well, I could go as far as suggesting he was lost on purpose. He chose to leave. And for most of his story, the son was having a good time. Luke 15, 20 says that when the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. I imagine that the father never stopped looking. Even though he still had an estate to run, so he was kind of anchored to a particular region, he still devoted time to look for his son's return, longing and hope that one day he will see his son on the horizon. And interestingly, I also think that these three sub-stories show some varying states of those who are lost. Both Luke 15 verse 7 and 15 verse 10 very clearly defines the lost as being sinners or a lost soul. Count on it, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people and no need of rescue. And count on it, that's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. You may be wondering, I can't assume that you do, uh, what does lost even mean? Um, My thoughts in this regard, if I was to kind of sum it up simply, is it's those out of relationship or connection with the ultimate searcher, that being God. And so each sub-story shows a various state of being lost. There are those who don't even know it. There are those who are due to inattention or mishandling. And there are those that have chosen to. This world is full of people, 
that need the love and care of searchers no matter what state of loss they are in. When my grandmother um, passed away five years ago, um, it was really sudden. Um, it, was, it was only a matter of hours between her going into the hospital and potentially staying in for a week till we found out that she was gone. And so the whole family gathered down in Rotorua and kind of a few hours later, there, there happened to be this point where out in the hallway, and I don't know why it happened this way, but all the males were out there. And we were having a chat just about life, anything outside of what had just happened because that's just how my family is. And in a moment of silence where we all stopped talking, my cousin's uh, son, who was about nine years old at the time, he just turned around and just goes, well, that's that then, eh? And man, it made us laugh. It was so innocent. We were just like, it was brutally honest though. There was a hint of reality in his innocence that it really was over. But here, the shepherd, the woman, and the father, all in their ways refused to give in to the temptation to just let that be that. They understood the value of that which was lost and the value of the search. Just a thought, but maybe, just maybe, Jesus was sharing an aspect of God's heart and also what he desires of his people. For those of us, oh sorry, for us to also be the searchers, always on the lookout for those who are not currently in relationship with the Father. It's just a thought. The last similarity between the three lost things that I notice is a beautiful one, and it's the rejoicing upon the lost thing being found. The sheep being found and carried on the shoulders of the shepherd and the community celebrating. When found, Luke 15, 4-7, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders rejoicing and when you got home, call in your friends and neighbours saying, celebrate with me, I found my lost sheep. Then there's the woman calling her neighbours and friends to have a party. When she finds it, the coin, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbours, celebrate with me, I found my lost coin. And the father seeing the son from a long way off and bringing the best of everything he had to celebrate with a feast. Bring a clean set of clothes and dress them. Put the family ring on his fingers, off finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. The lost things and the rejoicing when they are found. The agony and pain of loss versus the celebration of the found and returned. Our stories versus God's salvation. The thing is, all of us in some way have been lost. Maybe we still are. Sometimes we don't even realise it. The interesting thing about this parable is that I would suggest that there are actually not just three lost things, there are actually four. And so Luke 15, 25 to 32, while the celebration for the, the youngest son returning is going on, it says, all this time his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home, your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. It sounds good. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then the son of yours who, was thrown, who has thrown away your money shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, 
you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours, but this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. Now you might be thinking the older son isn't lost. He's with the father. He never ran off. Yes, there is some form of of some form of relationship between father and son here. That's evident in the fact that the father can so freely approach him. But there is hidden resentment and anger quite prevalent here. The father leaves the party to come and talk to the older son, showing him the same level of love, obviously concerned for him. Sadly, this parable finished with the older son having a full-on patty, possibly justified in his mind, and the father saying, son, you don't understand. The son was in the very presence of the father, but still didn't trust his father's judgment or understand the extent of his love for both of his sons. So maybe this year, as we often do at the beginning of the year, we choose to become more aware of those around us who are lost to the father. Those who don't know they are lost, those who are lost through mishandling or a bad hand dealt to them in life, and those who simply just choose to be away from the Father. But let's be especially aware that we are also in a good place ourselves, that we are leaning into the Father, celebrating with him those that please his heart, even when they may not make sense to us. And knowing that no matter what is happening around us, that the Father's love is immense for all that he will stop at nothing to pursue us, and he rejoices over us. Um, if I could just have the musicians come back, that would be fantastic. Over the past few months as I've been um, preparing this message, I've, I've tried to be aware of what God wanted to say for us, as you do in this kind of circumstance. Now, know in this, I am not a touchy-feely kind of bloke at all. Um, I had a bubble well before COVID came into existence. Um, if you get a hug from me, I seriously mean it. Um, so th- I'm just putting that out there to explain I, I don't normally fall back on stuff like this. But lately I've had on multiple occasions it really pressed on me the feeling that God wants to express to us, to each of us individually, the depth of his love. These stories are just as much about, a bit, just as much about the love that the Father has for us as the lessons that we learn from the process of finding the lost things. God loves each of us so much and so much more than we can reason. And I really feel he wants us to know that, to not just hear it, but to listen to it, to take it in, to let it become a part of who we are. Because for us to love others truly in the way that God wants us to, we need to realise that intensity of love he has for us as well. And maybe when we question that love in those times, we will look around us at his creation We'll look to the cross. We'll seek the Father. We'll be reminded of His love through the Scriptures. And we will embrace the love of God. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.